0: Welcome to the last installment of Mondays with the Modern Mystics. We are tonight going to hear from the Reverend Lori Anzalotti about two mystics. And she'll raise the question, are they mystics, with the group? Those two are the writers both in the Bay Area, Annie Lamott and Sarah Miles. You can find the slides from Lori's presentation on our website, holycommunion.net backslash mystics. Enjoy listening into this conversation and stick around at the end and we'll talk a little bit about what is next.
1: So welcome to Monday with the Modern Mystics. Um, I'm really happy tonight to share with you two women um, who I consider to be mystics. Um, but that's one of the questions I wanna talk about with you tonight is to see, to look at what is the definition of a mystic? and to see if you also think these women are mystics or if you think they're not, if maybe they're something else. So that's one of the things I just want you to keep in mind as we move forward tonight. Um, The first woman we'll look at is Sarah Miles and Anne Lamott is the second. Um, I have them parallel throughout, just like I do in this slide deck, um, this particular slide rather with Sarah Miles and then look at Anne. So we'll do Sarah, Anne, Sarah, Anne throughout. And you'll see why, because I picked these two women because they speak to my heart tremendously, but um, without realizing how many similarities um, they share. So it seems good to share those, the similarities of their path and some of their thinking um, instead of doing all Sarah and then all Anne. So there are our two mystics. And what is a mystic? Um, We've been looking at modern mystics the whole time and I have wondered, um, there's such a picture in my raised Roman Catholic head about what a mystic is. So um, I found a simple out of the dictionary definition of a mystic is a person who seeks by contemplation and self-surrender to obtain unity with or absorption into the deity or the absolute and who believes the spiritual apprehension of the true of truths that are beyond the intellect i like that any initial reactions just to this definition besides me saying i don't like that don't worry about tripping on each other too let me just say like Let's just have the great problem that three people all try to talk at the same time instead of worrying since we can't all see each other and it's hard to read body language. Anybody want to share any initial thoughts on this definition?
2: Truths that are beyond the intellect. I think that is an amazing phrase. (laughs) Me too.
3: I think the definition was not written by a mystic. Ah, say more about that, Emily. Well, they, um, I mean, the, anyway, my experience of mysticism is that, is that really that the borderline, the border between the person and God turns out not to exist. That, Mm. that um, God is closer than our, than our own breath. And so, um, and so even the idea of obtaining unity or absorption, um, it's actually just finding out that God was here all the time, or I, I mean, not for, not for everybody's experience but just this sense that God can't be mediated and that our best experience of God is inside our own lives.
1: Thank you, I, I love that observation. But this, the definition, if I'm hearing you correctly, the definition itself is a little too separate and a little too delineated and a little too rational for what mysticism or a mystic is in and of itself, Mm -hmm. or his or herself. Okay. So the two books that I'm mostly going to be speaking out of tonight are Sarah Miles has written five different books. Um, Take This Bread is her most well-known and the one that I'm familiar with. Anne Lamott, I'll mostly be speaking out of Traveling Mercies tonight. She's written over 30 books, both fiction and nonfiction. Um, Traveling Mercies is, um, kind of her spiritual autobiography in a way, um, in short essays. I just cannot recommend these authors enough, um what here, there's one similarity right away. Both these women are authors, but the other similarity between them is that each of them were raised in, um, atheist to agnostic, um, households. So Sarah Miles' parents were, um, raised by missionaries. Both her mother and father were the children of foreign missionaries, and they deeply rejected the, um, what they called simplistic um or uh kind of thinking around um their experience of faith and and transmitting it in an evangelical setting um in uh, in foreign missions so sarah miles writes that she was raised on the church of the new york times that and that was um unlike people who sort of just lapse out of church and they, you know, wind up with their coffee in their paper, like her parents were very explicit about that, about reading what is happening in the world and knowing what is happening in the world, and that that was what they believed in, science and what you could read and see and know. Um, Anne Lamott was also raised with not much, hers wasn't like Anne My- uh, Sarah Miles with the very like explicit messaging, but Faith just wasn't really a piece of um, what was part of her upbringing. I also wanna put an asterisk in here. If anybody here is familiar with these authors um, and has a different understanding than I'm sharing, please feel free to say that um, and to speak up and share how you know and understand these women. Um, so I would not find that threatening. I would find that enriching. So, um, so there's, there's some really fundamental similarities. They are both also single mothers, Sarah of a daughter named Katie and Anne of a son named Sam. Um, so a lot of similarities between the two women. How they came to faith is also very similar. This is why um, several weeks back before our coronavirus lives, I contacted Leslie. I asked Mary Chapman, if I could contact Leslie, to um, see if she could help me out in including music in our evening prayer, because it is so central to how these women came to faith. Sarah Miles writes, I, uh, Denise, would you read that quote for me?
4: Okay. <sighs> Go away. I, my. Okay, am I muted? Can you hear me? Nope, I hear you. We got you. I walked into St. Gregory's, took a chair, and tried not to catch anyone's eye. Then a man and a woman in long tie-dyed robes stood and began chanting in harmony. There was no organ, no choir, no pulpit, just the unadorned voices of the people and long silences framed by the ringing of deep Tibetan holes. That is how she came to find faith.
1: She, she was walking by St. Gregory's and she heard, she saw the service going on and something compelled her to walk in that to this day she cannot understand. And then she um, heard the music and the chanting just as Leslie chanted for us, the psalm this evening. And it drew her in, in a way she could not explain. She stood at the edge of the church, and it was the the music that pulled her in. And that is the same with Anne Lamont. Anne Lamont had, music was fundamental to pulling her into faith. So is there somebody who would be willing to read um, this slide? I will. Thank you, Marlene.
2: Then the singing enveloped me, It was furry and resonant, coming from everyone's very heart. There was no sense of performance or judgment, only that the music was breath and food. Something inside me that was stiff and rotting would feel soft and tender. Somehow the singing wore down all the boundaries and distinctions that kept me so isolated. Sitting there, standing with them to sing, Sometimes so shaky and sick that I felt like I might tip over. I felt bigger than myself, like I was being taken care of, tricked into coming back to life.
1: So music was essential for each of these women. For Anne Lamott, it was in the context of St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Marin County, California. She'd go every Sunday to the flea market, and this church happens to be on the edge of the flea market. And the doors would be open, and she'd hear the singing. And she'd stand on the edge, and it was the music that pulled her in. She specifically names the gospel music. And the spirituals that they sang at St. Andrew's, um, which is why um, Leslie closed our prayer out tonight with "No More Auction Block." They also both came to faith because they had a really strong encounter with Jesus. Um, in the immediately after they um, came the music pulled them into these faith communities. I mean, pulled Sarah rather into the faith community. She then said, and then we gathered around that table, the Eucharistic table, and there was more singing and standing. And someone was putting a piece of fresh crusty bread in my hands and saying the body of Christ and handing me the goblet of wine and saying the blood of Christ And then something outrageous and terrifying happened. Jesus happened to me. I just get goosebumps reading that. Um, Does anybody else have a reaction to, to her writing there?
2: I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that's the experience they have felt. So
1: she had this, she came to faith through being pulled in through music, and that music then led her to Eucharist, and it was the bread, that physicalness of bread that brought her to Jesus. And for Anne Lamott, she had a totally different but very similar uh, uh, experience of really, um, feeling Jesus. She had had an abortion um, and was deeply um, wounded by that experience. She was taking painkillers and drinking lots of whiskey and she started bleeding. Um, it was about a week after the abortion. And she um, was more uh, sadder she said than she had ever been in her entire life. And she's sitting there bleeding unable to call her best friend or the doctor because she just doesn't feel like she deserves to. And then this is what happened to her. Would somebody be willing to read this slide?
3: I'm willing. Thank you. After a while, as I lay there, I became aware of someone with me. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there. Of course, there wasn't. But after a while, in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt that it was Jesus. I felt him as surely as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this. And I was appalled. I thought about my life and my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends, I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian, and it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. And she
1: goes on to say, "To stay in that space of saying, absolutely no way, Jesus. She knows he's there and she says, no. And he follows her like a cat, she said hiding in the corner and sneaking out from behind the doorway until finally one day she goes to the door she's living in a houseboat and she goes to the door of the houseboat and says fine you can come in and that was it that was it for her so these are their experiences of coming to of their upbringing and of coming to faith and so i wonder for you How did you come to faith? Their way in was music and a deep sense of the presence of Jesus. How did you come to faith? What was your way in? Or if you feel like faith and Christ have always been a part of your life, what is it that helps you remain in faith?
5: All right, there we go. Uh, Hello, everybody, sorry I came in late. Um,
1: Hey, hi, Michael.
5: It's your prayer, but uh, I'm here.
1: We're glad. Anyway,
5: anyway, for me, um, it really was, uh, you know, as a little kid, um, I still remember my first communion. I remember my first, my confirmation. Um, There was always something there, even though I was usually pretty bored at church, um, and then um, I went to St. Lucie High, and went, so I discovered the Jesuits and that kind of solidified that. Um, I didn't remain kind of off and on, um, but what, what keeps me in faith, I think, well, I'm not quite sure, but it's just this general need to hear about a higher power, um, a God that I can connect with the God that has meaning for me but it also has meaning in the world and uh, I get that through books I get that through obviously um, holy communion I get that through other spiritual groups and practices that I have and uh, yeah I don't think I could not remain in faith somehow
6: mm. thank you You know, my
2: faith has wavered off and on over my adult life. I was, you know, came into the faith as a child, but I can't imagine now how I would live without it.
1: Is there something in particular, Marlene, that that, um, holds you or draws you in? Like for them, what drew them in was the music? and then there was some experience of bread or of a moment in life that, that, is there something in particular that keeps you connected
2: or beyond words? It's beyond words. It's no one thing.
7: Mm -hmm.
2: It's having hope throughout life.
7: Well, I finally unmuted myself.
1: Well done, Christy. I didn't realize
7: there, where the buttons were. But anyway, I believe that I grew up in faith. Um, we went to Sunday school every Sunday, and I had wonderful teachers teaching me the Bible, the children-type Bible stories like they've got in Godly Play. Mm-hmm. And... I had my first communion when I was 13 or 14 because we had we didn't kids didn't take communion back then and that was significant for me it was very significant for for me and I have pretty much gone to church all the rest of my life and I have had moments like Attending Christio, which is a short course in Christianity, which helped deepen my faith and helped surround me with a lovely bunch of Christians who have supported me throughout uh, my adult time. And it's just been an ongoing thing. And I feel like coming to church Studying and participating are what keeps me in the faith.
1: Yeah, that's interesting that the thread, like between what I'm hearing with you um, and Michael, maybe a little Marlene, and these women, is they didn't find it through listening to music alone, they found right. it music in, commu- in a communal context. And, you know, Michael, you can read and you can study Christy on your own, but that, that piece of bringing it into communal life, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, that's what, I mean,
7: that is very important to me to hear, I can get caught up in my own thoughts, but to hear what other people think about a subject is, makes it deeper and, 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 uh, widens my horizons
1: takes you outside of yourself yes Great. The, i wanted to share next thank you all for um thinking about those questions and sharing um in your heart or out loud um i wanted to share what is central to this what one thing i mean i think a number of people could say different things that are central to these women but um one facets that i saw that are central to their spirituality and for sarah miles it's feeding people it's table ministry that might even be a, a better thing to put after that colon is is table ministry um she was a cook and a baker and um, that was important to who she was. And she had, she's so, int- she had lived such an interesting life. She was a journalist throughout um, the Central America in the late 80s and early 90s, while um, so much civil war was going on. And so she was a war correspondent there and was in some pretty tight and tough situations. And people sharing food in that context when they had so little was deeply meaningful to her. So... That was part of why receiving that crusty fresh bread was so powerful for her and part of why it's so central to her spirituality, feeding ministry in general. Um, Tyler, would you be, are you able to read this and, and share this passage?
5: Sure. Thanks. I didn't deserve communion myself now. I wasn't getting it because I was good. I wasn't getting it because I was spiritual special. I certainly didn't get to pick who was good enough, holy enough, deserving enough to receive it. It wasn't a private meal. The bread on that table had to be shared with everyone in order for me to really share it.
1: And she takes that sense of, thank you, Tyler. She takes that sense of table ministry and the importance of everybody being able to receive. And this gets merged into... um, she starts a food pantry. There um, In California, they were working to implant food pantries in local neighborhoods um, instead of having mass distribution centers. And she begins a food pantry at St. Gregory's and the Eucharistic table, the altar, is what they use for people to come and get food. So Imagine the truck pulling up to the Dalmar door of Holy Communion and the food, like we've pushed all the chairs to the side and pews because they have a very open concept space like we do now. And that we set up tables with the food on it and people come right up to the altar to, you know, pick if they're going to get potatoes or apples this week. And it, uh, ugh, I get goosebumps again. I mean, that is what that Eucharistic table is about. And that nobody was turned away. They had no income tests, no litmus tests, no, if you came, you signed your name in and you got food, period. Then there were all kinds of problems because it got really big and that became logistically difficult and How do you stay true to that core spiritual tenant and deal with people who are in line for three hours and like throwing trash on the neighbor's yards and urinating and, you know, this is not high in the sky. It's like real nitty gritty stuff. But her spirituality is centered on a table ministry that is open to all that I think this um, quotation from the book captures. For Anne Lamott... What's central to her spirituality is just the nitty gritty. Um, she sees God in the everyday encounter in a really in a really profound way. Um, Michael, would you be able to read the the bigger quote on the left hand side?
6: Uh oh, you got muted. I'm trying to unmute you. Well, I don't know why you're not unmuting. Uh oh, could somebody else read? Did he accidentally
1: mute himself? Oh, there you go, now you're not. Michael, you can go. Uh Uh-oh, yeah, no. We can't hear you still.
6: I don't know what changed. Sorry, Rebecca, would you be able to read it? I'll read it. Thank you. Writing a novel is like driving a car at night. You can see only as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. You don't have to see where you're going. You don't have to see your destination or everything you will pass along the way. You just have to see two or three feet ahead of you. This is right up there with the best advice on writing or life I have ever heard.
1: So writing is also central to her spirituality. Um, It is just, who she is and what she does, Um, and in that is just looking at what's right in front of you and finding the God in it. I think um, that's also reflected in the other little quotation there on that box to the right. Here are the best two prayers I know. Help me, help me, help me, and thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, She wrote a book called uh, Help, Thanks, Wow, the Three Essential Prayers. Um, so for Anne Lamott, looking at how she raised her son, looking at what happened after an abortion, looking at, um, there's another one that we'll talk about later, about um, her dealing with forgiveness um, through a relationship with a mother of a classmate um, when her son was her son's first grade classmate. His mother was really challenging for her. So Anne Lamott finds her spirituality in the nitty gritty of life. That leads me.
6: Wow. Hold on. This is acting right. Uh-oh. What happened?
7: let scrolled too far.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's not behaving very well for me. I don't know why. Uh Uh-oh. There we go. Now it's behaving better. Both women bring God to the everyday, to the act of eating, to the nitty-gritty of life. And I wonder, what is your central spirituality? What's essential to your spirituality, to your relationship
6: with um, God? everyone is welcome. Welcome. welcome Jesus ate with everybody so it doesn't matter who you are you're you're welcome that's very important to me
1: everybody welcome
7: well my central spirituality is very tied up in the Eucharist and that has been difficult for me except that I Luckily found a little dissertation in with the episcopals online and I'm okay now (laughs) with not being able to have communion.
1: Good. That must really be a challenge. I mean, Rebecca, for you too, in this time, because everyone is welcome, but that's a hard there's an almost an absence of your spirituality in a time when everybody can't be welcome because we all have to be separate. I mean, you can do virtual welcomes, but there's something that tangible piece is missing. And same with you, Christy, that tangible Eucharistic shared bread um, is missing.
6: For me, I don't think it's as um, challenging, I guess, as it might be for for you. I was raised in a, a Protestant Christian denomination that did not take communion every week. So that's not something that's necessarily really important to me, but like the virtual coffee hour afterwards, where everybody is welcome and you can have kind of group conversations in the breakout rooms, that, that is important to me. I wouldn't show up if we weren't doing something like that afterwards, where you could feel everybody together yeah I would I grew up as a
7: Presbyterian too, so I went from finding the Eucharist at special times during the year as being sacred to where I found that I was fed through the Eucharist um, in a daily or at least weekly basis.
6: Mm -hmm.
7: So I, I, (laughs) it's really weird. So I reverted. Go ahead, Denise, I'm sorry.
6: Well, okay.
4: I kind of i wouldn't say that my central spirituality is tied up in the Eucharist, but the Eucharist is very important to me, and i don't deal well with having to go for long periods of time without it um, in our in my class that meets on Monday afternoon. the class is Eucharist and we've all been talking about what it's been like to have our usual Eucharistic patterns disrupted by this situation. Um, but I I kind of, I turned to the uh, Book of Common Prayer in the um, Ministry to the Sick where it talks about if the person is unable to eat or drink, the minister is to assure the person that all benefits are received if, you know, through their desire to receive it. And I, yeah, I said, I don't think that the person writing these rubrics probably thought about the possibility of a pandemic, <laughs> <but> causing, <laughs> causing services to be suspended for an extended Period of time, but the same is still true that we need to remind ourselves that even though we're not able to receive through no fault of our own, that uh, it's that we still can count on having God's grace. I mean, it's not, you know. Thanks,
1: Denise. Donna, I'm going to invite you, especially since I don't know what, if you're seeing us, anything that you'd like to share about central to your, that's central to your spirituality?
8: I've been trying, I'm sitting here listening to everybody and trying to think about how I would answer the question. And I think that one thing, I don't have it. I, I, it's probably not going to sound very put together because it isn't. That's okay. And I think it, it's it's changed as I've gotten older, and and it's expanded, and um, it it's not. I'm not sure how to say it. I, I don't feel like God is separate from me anymore. I feel like it's, it's all just this big um, oneness of me and God and everybody and everything. And, and it's just, it just is.
1: Yeah. And I hear a lot of what you're saying in both the women that we're looking at tonight. Um, Emily, you look like you might be t- getting ready to say something. Am I Sorry. reading it
3: wrong? That's mysticism, Donna, what you're talking about. That's mysticism. Okay. I mean, and I wonder if saying both women bring God to the everyday, but do they encounter God in the everyday? Like this idea of bringing to means that there's a separation. I, I don't know. Yeah, and
1: you're pointing out my inadequacy of authorship there, not necessarily the author's attitude. So um, yeah, that was, so you're right. That wording could be improved, Emily, uh, dramatically. Oh, oh my gosh! I just realized I had a skittle in my back pocket, and um, it melted while I've been sitting here into the carpet, through my jeans, and into the carpet. Sorry. I was like, "What am I sticking to?" Oh Lord, have mercy! <laughs> These are strange <laughs> I, anybody along with me, I have no idea what I would say is central to my spirituality. That's something I think I have to sit with more. Anybody else?
9: Um, Can I just, uh, oh, sorry. sorry. No, go no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the, the reason, well, hello everybody, I'm a little late because our kids are taking baths, but um, both these women have a very special place in my spiritual like path. Um, they both came I found both of their books at different times in life where um, spirituality wasn't for me, religion wasn't for me. And um, they both have taken me into a place where um, I think Sarah Miles' description of her first communion was my first communion in an Episcopal church. I grew up in a uh, church where we didn't take communion all the time. And um, and it, so like when I read her book, I was like, oh my gosh, this girl you know, this woman is going through these things and have gone through these things that I have. And so it was just really eye-opening that there were Christians out there that were like me and that I didn't have to be like other Christians, if that makes any kind of sense. And that finding uh, Christ and in, in God and everything that happened every day and people that you meet every day was something that I had never been taught. And that was like mind blowing to me where now I think of it very differently. Like we, we talk to our kids about like, God lives inside of you, you know, and that determines how you treat people and how you treat things. And so, um, it's just kind of crazy. Cause I would say like, they're part of my central spirituality is both these women and what they, they've written as, is, is, you know, to kind of changed the path that my life was on twice. So it's kind of crazy.
1: Thank you. And Carrie, you missed the part when I, I think where I started this whole thing off. And I'm like, if anybody knows about these women has familiarity, please share where you think, oh, well, you thought that was central. I'd say this, yeah. because that'll just enrich our conversation. So um, yeah. And I Anne Lamont writes um, that it is embarrassing to be a Christian because it like links you up with those like right wing. I mean, let's just name it, with the people that are still having a thousand people to worship and shaking hands and hugging last Sunday. And, and you're like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not one of those. (laughs) Right. Like, ah, (laughs) ah, and so one of those
7: ministers got arrested.
1: (laughs) They did? Yes. Wow. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Um, I just saw it
7: on today, this afternoon.
1: uh, So some of that sense of you don't have to, like, neither of these women belonged to the club, right? The Christian club. Right. Um, And yet they found God, and God found them anyway, however you want to put it. Um, Last thing, I just wanted to share uh, a couple, two other things that I found really meaningful that they wrote. Um, and then return to that initial question of, do we think, from this little conversation we've had together, do we think that these women are mystics? Um, Could somebody read the Sarah Miles passage?
6: Michael, can you do it? Yes. Yay!
5: (laughs) (laughs) It was so tempting to turn the gospel into law, wisdom into knowledge, But there was Jesus, the word made flesh. There he was, over and over, sweeping away his followers' attempts to codify and regulate their, their experiences of the divine. He'd spit in men's eyes and stick his fingers in their ears, touch unclean corpses and women, yell at religious authorities, and impatiently demand that people drop their church going and give the poor everything they own. Don't be okay. Somebody take over from here because I somehow can't scroll down.
1: Don't be afraid, he said. It's me. Come on, let's go.
5: That's so great. That's so great. And I think that that's that's, uh, probably one thing that I have um, discovered through people, through mystics, Um, people like these two women and others that... um, really get it that it's about the experience of Jesus and God and not so much about the rules or about learning more um but what what is yeah what is that that hard uh that touching that you know just earthy experience and uh, yeah I love this quote don't be afraid. It's me. Come on, let's go.
1: (laughs) Could write about that right about now. And then here is uh, one from Anne Lamott. This is sort of, I couldn't type out the whole chapter for you so we can do this opening one and I'll tell you how this story ends. Leslie Kaplan, you want to read it?
10: Went around saying for a long time that I am not one of those Christians who is heavily into forgiveness, that I am the other kind. But even though it was funny and actually true, it started to be too painful to stay this way. They say we are not punished by the sin, and I began to feel punished by unwillingness to forgive. By the time I decided one of the ones who is heavily, into forgiveness. It was like trying to become a marathon runner in middle age. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and she, this is the opening to her chapter on forgiveness. And um, she goes on to talk about that mom in her son, Sam's first grade class. And she's just, the moms to her, to Anne Lamont is just insufferable. Like she does annoying things like read the notes that teachers send home in the backpack. And, and the mom knows like that you're supposed to pick your kid up an hour early on Wednesdays, which is so annoying. And it's October and she's still picking her son up at the same time. And Ann Lamott is instead of coming an hour early for early dismissal. And the mom comes to her, finds out that Ann has been late all these months and says to her, just let me know if you need help. And Lamont goes on to say, I mean, how could she even? She's so just terrible. And she ends the chapter. The sons become good friends and they start playing at each other's house. And the mom invites her for tea to sit down and have a cup of tea. And she's like, ugh. But she does it. And she said, all of a sudden, I finally got it. The veil dropped. I got that I'm mad as a hatter. I saw that I was the one worried that my child wasn't doing well enough in school, that I was the one who thought I was out of shape, and that I was trying to get her to carry all this for me because it hurt too much to carry it myself. I wanted to kiss her on both cheeks, apologize for all the self-contempt I've been spewing out into the world All the bad juju I'd been putting on her by thinking she was the one doing harm. So she just writes about finding these deeply spiritual concepts, struggling with them. Um, Kara, I'm thinking about what you said about these women coming in at just the right time in your life. And that's one thing I love about both of them. They don't make it sound easy. Well, if you just believe... It's like, no, she wrestled all year with like wanting to forgive people and thinking it was too hard. And so she'd start with this mom and it still was too hard. Um, all the real wrestling around these deep topics. So I return to the our initial question. There's the definition, which Emily uh, pointed out, is itself like pretty much a dichotomy. Emily, you want to repeat again what you, how you phrased a mystic? How you phrase mysticism?
3: Uh, Donna said it best. <laughs> um, something about no, no, no borders between yourself and what is holy and what is divine and the life of the universe and between anybody else's life.
1: So what do you think, team? Let's, uh, you think these women are mystics?
7: <sighs> I don't know. I am, I think they're mystical.
2: <laughs> I they certainly know. are in the judge that anybody is or is not mystical. I don't feel
8: that I can make that call.
6: Mm-hmm.
8: But I do well, think if I come at it from the place that I was talking about, of oneness, when I read over this definition, like it, I think that we can make a case that we're all mystics. Not that everybody is, but all of us who are here and and those like us that are trying to wrestle with these questions, and I I think you could make a case that we all are.
2: I'm more familiar with, I've read more books by Annie Lamont than I have by Sarah Miles. I've just read one by her, but Annie Annie Lamont seems to be able to think in such detail and make a lot out of any situation that it's, I find that very sometimes frustrating and sometimes mystifying. I
5: would say, um, I think, I think, uh, the concept of mysticism and a mystic um, has always been very difficult for me to put my arms around. Um, but I've kind of come to a, a sense for me that it, it is, it somehow describes someone who's able to, um, see God in the ordinary, you know, in the day to day, one step in front of the other, um, not just at church or in prayer or you know, all the other things that we do that are overtly uh, religious or spiritual, but in those everyday things that, you know, sometimes are easy, like sunsets and um, rainbows or whatever, the things that are easy to grab onto is thinking that God's there, but I think some of the people who just Maybe this is, I, I don't, I'm not as familiar with the Annie Lamott, but certainly Sarah Miles found God in, in all these common people. And sometimes the, the people that most people would, uh, you know, push aside or ignore. And that to me is a, for me, that's a really good definition of a mystic. Because I think of other people that fall into that category, like Thomas Merton or Dorothy Day, um, they, they, I, I can say that they're, yes, they are mystics. I can't always tell you why, but that's one facet of them that I can say is truly a mystic.
1: Thanks, and I have to give credit to Michael's wife, Nancy, who gave me um, Take This Bread. <laughs> I, had, I had not read Sarah Miles until Nancy said, Lori, you have got to read this. You're going to love it. <laughs> so I've read lots of Anne Lamott, but I read Sarah because of Michael's wife, Nancy.
7: Well, I have to say that, that Donna's explanation of things, I know that I have felt periods of feeling one at one with everything around me. And I know that that's the time I feel the best, the closest to God, the closest to my friends and family. And so I don't know if that's a mystical experience because I wouldn't call myself a mystic, but I do know that that's what makes me happiest when I move into those experiences.
6: Leslie, I wonder if
1: you have any observations as our Episcopal um, Jew who's straddling two faith communities.
10: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure you want to go there. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story. Yeah, yeah. I was raised as a Jew. I'm a Jew. And we had a woman who was a live-in babysitter like a nanny when I was little. And she was a Christian scientist. And she and I would sit in her room and listen to Mary Baker Eddy and talk about how people would be healed uh, healed by faith. And my mother came in one day and she heard this and she went insane. And she grabbed me and she looked at Marie and she said, We don't believe that. And don't ever let her listen to this again. And she dragged me out of the room. And I thought to myself, I don't know what a five-year-old or six-year-old uses for the word capricious, but the word, whatever the equivalent was for a child came into my mind. And I thought, hmm, if the idea of God is that capricious, I, I'm not going there. And I've spent the rest of my life questioning. I spent... Huh more in houses of worship than anybody you know yep never. i've never found a answer i've never found a definition rabbi susan says that if you can name it it's not god i don't know i've never had an answer yeah i i just i just don't know
6: if you i believe in
10: goodness um, often at the synagogue on Friday night, kids from Greenville College come and that's a very fundamentalist college. They can't, I'm sure they think we're going to hell. They can't understand why we ever do the right thing if we don't believe in original sin. And I try to explain to them, we do the right thing because it's the right thing. And I have spent my life searching and I guess I will continue. But I, I sometimes say that I, I find the questions in the synagogue Friday and Saturday, in church on Sunday. But I kind of usually find the answers on the floor of the yoga studio.
1: Mm. Yeah, something about that physicality. Talk about finding God in all things. Something does happen on the yoga mat for me too. Emily, I know yoga, Emily's a yoga teacher. I don't know if anybody else practices, but there's something when you're not thinking and just um, moving that... Yeah, things can kind of—I kind of, don't know—no so, answers, but things can come together. Yeah,
10: I mean, sometimes I think our our minds are too small to <laughs> to understand and contain the everythingness of it. Yeah, you know, sometimes we just need to absorb it through our
7: pores. Yep.
1: yep. Well, I. I appreciate about Holy Communion that we expanded the definition or pushed the boundary of what it means to be a mystic. Um, That's why I wanted to open and close with that question tonight. We've spent these past five Mondays um, looking at modern mystics and and as a former Roman Catholic, that meant Catherine of Siena and her seven um, mansions, you know, to, to heaven and some sort of like you have to set yourself aside. And in this contemplative time, then you can bring your mind to God um, and have some kind of um, experience that brings you out of yourself and into union with God. But what I'm hearing here from this group, is much more that this isn't something that happens when you sit in a particular type of prayer only. And it isn't that God is here and you rise to God and meet God and then leave. It's, it's this, um, right. I I
7: can't see what you're doing.
1: Hands kind of woven together at the bottom. Okay. Instead of this, you know, either or us and God kind of concept. So Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, I encourage you, please, to uh, read more from these women if you need any recommendations um, on Anne Lamott's books. Um, I've, I've got a few, and I'm happy to point you in the right direction. So thank you. We'll just close with a blessing. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. May His blessing, her blessing, remain with you today and always. Amen. Amen. Amen.
0: Thanks for joining in this our last class for Mondays with the Modern Mystics. Our group will meet for contemplative prayer on Monday in Holy Week on April sixth, just for about a half an hour at six o'clock, and then. We'll take a break in Easter week, the day after Easter is traditionally a day off for clergy, but we'll be back at it not too long into the Easter season with another class. So we hope to see you soon.